Today's reading of the Holy Gospel according to the witness of St. John, the first chapter, verses 1 through 8. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through Him, and without Him not one thing came into being. What has come into being in Him was life, and the life was the light of all people. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify to the light so that all might believe through him. He himself was not the light, but he came to testify to the light. This is the gospel of our Lord. Amen. Dear friends in Christ, grace to you and peace from God our Father and from our Lord and living Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Last week, those of you who were able to be in worship know that we began this holy season of Advent, this special time of reflection and preparation. Uh, During these four weeks before Christmas, Christians down through the ages and around the world today uh, take time and they they deliberately make the time to think more... um, uh, intently, more intentionally, um, about the coming of Christ. Our focus last week was uh, the first five verses of the very same gospel reading that I just uh, read for you, verses 1 to 5. We heard on that first Sunday in Advent that uh, in the beginning, in the beginning, was the Word. That Word, the eternal Word, is Jesus, uh, who was with God in the beginning and continues to be God for all time. This is a very important theological truth. And if you missed last weekend's sermon, I really encourage you to go online and give it a listen because it's foundational to our faith as we remember the Word made flesh, God's only begotten Son. This Word took on human flesh and dwelt among us. In John's gospel, uh, the literal translation is uh, pitched his tent among us. Think about the Israelites. Think about the people of Israel, nomadic people who left Egypt and wandered for 40 years in the wilderness. Uh, This Jesus is our neighbor. He came to be among us. He pitched his tent. He took on flesh right here on planet earth. This is what we remember each and every Christmas, uh, this gift of the Savior born of Mary. Today, as we continue looking at these first few verses in John's Gospel, we continue with uh, just three short verses where, in an economy of language, uh, John is introduced according to uh, John the Evangelist's Gospel. And, you know, in this season of preparation, it seems odd to some people that we would think about John the Baptist. What does he have to do with Christmas? Well, the church has always remembered the life and the witness of John the Baptist because he tells us to prepare the way of the Lord. We know he wasn't there in Bethlehem when Jesus was born, but John the Baptist and Jesus' lives are connected um, in precious, powerful, uh, important ways. And by the way, as long as we're talking about the scriptures, and the, the original languages, uh, we really shouldn't be, if we're literalists, you know, calling him John the Baptist. It really uh, is John the Baptizer, 
Um, you know, Baptist is like a title, but he was one who was baptizing people in the river Jordan, calling them to prepare the way of the Lord. So uh, who was this John, the baptizer? You can cross-reference this on your own time, but in uh, the chapter, uh, first chapter of Luke's gospel, we learn this important uh, familial connection. Uh, John and Jesus were cousins. Uh, John's mother, Elizabeth, and Jesus' mother, Mary, belonged to the same clan, the same tribe, what the New Testament calls kinswomen. So John and Jesus were cousins. I want you to think about your own cousins for a moment this morning. Just work with me. Think about your own cousins. Uh, it's been said that a cousin is a little bit of childhood that can never be lost. Now, uh, some of you uh, were the only child in your family of origin. You had no brothers or sisters. And some of you have told me just how important those cousins were to you growing up. They were like the brothers and the sisters you never had. Um, And some of you have cousins that are um, almost like brothers and sisters. You're just so close and you've got so many shared memories. On the other hand, because here at Faith, we do real ministry with honest preaching. Sometimes the cousin's the last person you want to see. I had to step out of the pulpit and walk down and break up a fist fight during a funeral where cousins who didn't want to spend any time with each other had to do it because an uncle had died. And I watched them kind of giving each other these hand motions during my sermon. And before you knew it, there was a fist fight. I never was trained for that in seminary. (laughs) But I'm pulling these rascals one off the other. And I just say, if you can't behave yourselves, get out in the streets and fight like dogs if you want to fight like dogs. And okay. (laughs) The only time I had that kind of power with just words. I think being 6'5 helped. Uh, some of you know that almost all of my cousins um, were born and raised in an eastern Tennessee town called Kingsport. My father was in the army. I've shared this so many times. We moved 21 times during my 18 years growing up with my family. But every second or third summer, we'd hop in the family car, my two younger brothers, my mom, dad, and I, and we'd go visit these cousins in Kingsport. And it was 1967. My dad had his first brand new car. It was a Bonneville Pontiac, the big lead sled, you know? And uh, it had state-of-the-art stereo. It was called Reverb. It had this little switch, and it would make the back speakers um, produce the sound milliseconds after the front speakers. So it was like you know, listening to the radio, and we thought it was cool, this reverb. Usually, I was assigned to the back seat to make sure my younger and middle brother didn't mess with each other, but every now and again, I'd get promoted. Mom would go back to the back seat, and I'd ride up front with Dad. It was just awesome. And I remember, as we're making our way yet again to eastern Tennessee, I said to my father, Dad, how come we always visit these cousins in the same place? And he looks at me and he says, I have no idea what you're talking about. I said, Dad, how come we always visit them in Kingsport? And he goes, son, you're going to have to explain what you mean. And I said, don't they get reassigned? And then he laughed and said, oh, son, oh, Bruce Jr., they're civilians. I had no idea what that meant. 
And he went on to explain that they would probably live their entire life in that same county, Sullivan County, Tennessee. And I said, is that allowed? (laughs) I mean, he was blowing my mind. And we'd get there. And, um, you know, when you grow up as an army brat and you move 21 times in 18 years, you get a weird accent because your accent is always kind of shaped by your dad's most recent duty station. So a little bit of Fort Bliss, Texas, some Fort Lewis, Washington, some West Point, New York, a little bit, you know, of Fort Rucker, Alabama. But I remember uh, being back visiting my, um, my cousins and one of them, Brian, he looks at me and says, uh, now, my nickname growing up, I hated I still do. I am W. Bruce Wilder Jr. And because of that W, I was nicknamed Dubby. Don't you even think about using it. (laughs) I broke up a fight at a funeral. But this one cousin, Brian, says, Dubby, you talk funny. And I'm thinking to myself, I talk funny. You talk funny. And then another cousin, not missing a beat, says, Yeah, Debbie, are you a Yankee? So, you've got your memories of cousins, I've got mine. I'm really glad to be living in New Mexico. Anyway, it's a long way from Tennessee. John and Jesus were cousins. And uh, for John, Jesus was probably the closest thing to a brother he ever had. They're almost the exact same age, just uh, six months apart. And when they became grown men, you know this, don't you? Uh, Jesus appears at the River Jordan, and he submits himself to a baptism of repentance he did not need to fulfill all of God's plans of salvation. Even in the Jordan River, Jesus is being baptized, a baptism that's needed For sinners, even though he was without sin, as he would die on a cross, the spotless Lamb of God, taking your sin and my sin on his own back. And that baptism began what's called his public ministry, about three years. The Bible tells us that long before that baptism, Mary went to visit her cousin, Elizabeth, and they both happened to be pregnant with their boys. And this is what took place. At that time, Mary got ready and hurried to a town in the hill country of Judea, where she entered Zechariah's home and greeted Elizabeth. When Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. In a loud voice, she exclaimed, Blessed are you among women. Blessed is the child you will bear. Why am I so favored that the mother of my Lord should come to me? As soon as the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. What a precious, earthy tender moment in God's plan of salvation, these two women with child, both of them pregnant. And John moves and leaps for joy. So I want to spend some time with you this morning thinking about John, who calls his people in every generation to faithfulness. And um, In the seventh chapter of Luke's gospel, Jesus says that his cousin, and this is not nepotism, this is not plain family favorites, Jesus said this prophet is like no other prophet. This John, says Jesus, is the greatest human being who ever lived. So we do well to think on John this second Sunday in Advent. 
No one reminds us how to prepare for the coming of the Lord like John. His words are enduring. And so what do we hear from this John? Well, first of all, it's a word of prophecy. John is a prophet. Um, Unlike what passes for prophets today in so many places, uh, prophets like John are not people who claim to have some, you know, latest and greatest secret insight into the future. True prophets of God don't need some secondary uh, team of experts to crack the code of their message. True prophecy is not about, you know, secret messages, hidden clues, or numerical codes that now finally, because we have, you know, information technology, we can solve. The prophets in the Bible always call God's sons and daughters into um, accountability. And that sometimes makes them most unpopular. You don't hear about the prophets in the Old Testament winning popularity contests. Neither did John. Uh, He wound up executed. You know this. Prophets remind God's people who they are and what God expects of them. And they remind God's people what the consequences of disobedience might look like. There's nothing secretive about it. The words of true prophets always conform to God's lordship. And they never contradict the word given in scripture. John was this kind of prophet. And Jesus said he's the greatest. And like all legitimate prophets, the word of the Lord came to John. He was not a self-proclaimed prophet. God's in charge here, using John on God's terms, accomplishing God's loving will, communicating God's gracious message of a Savior. There are so many so-called prophets in the world today, and Jesus warned us that we shouldn't trust them all. We should test them out. That many would come in his name. And we shouldn't listen to those who have a false prophecy. So what is the test of a true prophet? Simply this. Do they call God's people in every generation to turn to the Lord? To seek his will in their lives? Or do they claim to have some additional information that even contradicts the word given in the Bible. There are plenty of false prophets in this category. Entire religions have been founded on their false teachings. But John was a prophet of the highest order, the biblical order, the faithful order. And that leads us to his message of preparation. And sometimes this can be a hard one. He tells us to prepare the way of the Lord. And what is that? by turning from our sin. The Bible calls this repentance. And it literally means an about face. You're going after sin, you're in sin, you're going this direction. And repentance is what the Bible calls metanoia. It's a turnabout. It's a renunciation, a saying no, and a returning home and a saying yes to what is good and holy. It's a returning home to God. True repentance according to God's standards. You see, it leaves no stone unturned. It's not about just appearances and what we want other people to think we are or who we might pretend to be, but it's who we truly are. It includes the things we have done and are doing in secret. 
where God sees. So this call to prepare, um, it requires us to take a long, hard look at ourselves and our relationships. What kind of preparations are taking place in your home this uh, Advent season? What preparations are taxing your time and requiring the most of your energy? If your answer has to do with decorations and gift-getting, I get it, I get it, I'm right there with you. Kirsten and I played a lot of catch-up ball yesterday, finally, you know, getting out the trees and the lights and the decorations, you know, we're, we're almost two weeks behind schedule. But if this is the extent of our preparation or yours, then we will all be ill-prepared for the coming of the Lord, no, no matter how many hours we put in. You see, Christmas is not just this sentimental journey back in time to pretend that we're there with um, Mary and Joseph and baby Jesus in Bethlehem. As we remember the Word made flesh, we remember this Son of Mary, this Son of God, this Word made flesh was born to die. And He died not because the world can be so mean, not because he was um, a good guy who got in trouble with uh, bad people. He died according to God's will because of your sin and my own sin and our disobedience. And John the baptizer, this prophetic voice, reminds us that the coming of Christ requires us to take a look at ourselves from God's point of view. And listen up. God exposes your sin and my own. Not to humiliate us, not to shame us, but to help us and to save us and to turn us from darkness to light, from shame to joy, and if necessary, uh, to, to, to move us from arrogance to a little bit of humility. So what are you doing to prepare the way of the Lord in your own life, in your own heart, in your own relationships and this leads us to um, the promise of God. You see, if we're preparing uh, out of fear, that's not the kind of preparation that John or Jesus would have us doing. Uh, John reminds us in his message that all flesh, all humankind will see the glory of God, the salvation of the Lord. He quotes the prophet Isaiah, and that doesn't mean everyone's going to see the first Christmas it had already happened when John's preaching. He's talking about the second coming of Christ when everyone will see God's glory, when every knee in heaven, on earth, and under the earth will bend at the name of Jesus. This is the other aspect of our Advent preparation, the first coming and the promised second coming. God's word tells us that Jesus will come again. He will judge the living and the dead. And Jesus gives us this promise, this word that he will take us to the Father's house for all those who love him, who confess and acknowledge their sin before him, who trust in his promise of mercy that can make all things new, even broken relationships. There is life and there is the hope of joy restored. That's the promise of our loving God. These are not my words, these are God's words. Jesus came to save us from death, to give us life, 
to free us from the power of sin at work in our hearts, our minds, in our marriages, in our families. It's all about grace, which is a pure gift, and it's all about Jesus. So what are you doing with the gift? Ultimately, what is your life all about? Is your hope grounded in Christ? Whose promise are you trusting the most? And when you think about answers to questions like these, hard, hard questions, and I'm asking them of myself this Advent season, well, then you're thinking just the way that John the Baptizer would have it. And when I turn from my sin and you turn from yours, acknowledging our brokenness before God, asking the Lord to help us live the Jesus way, oh, you see, that's preparing. That's preparing the way of the Lord. So friends, Christmas is coming. And so is Jesus. So, take this with you this week. What are you doing? What are you going to do? To make ready. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.